What a song. That's a good one. We'll sing it again next week, I think. That's the plan. And I hope you get so used to it that you want to sing it every week because it is the gospel. That's it. It's the gospel right there. And her, her message was so accurate. You know, we have songs that are written, and we sing them, and we sing them, and we sing them for year after year after year. And sometimes we don't stop and think, wait a minute, this is not what the gospel is. The gospel is not for those who are triumphant and those who are joyful and those who have everything going on right. The gospel is for the opposite. The gospel is the welcome to those who are weak and heavy laden and burdened and broken and overcome by our own sin. And Jesus says, come to me and find rest. And so it's great to find a song that, that hits the gospel nail on the head. All right, Genesis chapter 39. If you found that, let's have a word of prayer together and um, ask for God's uh, help in our study. Father, thank you for bringing us here this morning, each and every one of us. Um, We believe you are absolutely sovereign. Uh, Your providence rules all the affairs of earth. You either cause or allow everything that takes place. And so each of us is here this morning by your design. You have purposes. You have reasons. And maybe we know those reasons already. Maybe we don't yet know those reasons, but we trust you. We're so glad that you have decided to bring us to the best place we could be. There is no better place than where your word is opened and where you are the focus and your son is the focus. So thank you. And I pray that as we spend these next few moments together, that that's exactly what will happen, that our focus is not somewhere else. It's not on what happened another day. It's not on other people. It's not on other events. It's on what you have already revealed about yourself and your great grace through your son, Jesus Christ. And we have seen so many times that that is found not just in the four Gospels. It's found in everything that led up to those Gospels. It's found everything that came after those Gospels because Jesus is the message. He is your revelation of yourself. If we miss him, we've missed everything. And so I pray that as we come to Genesis chapter 39 this morning and talk about Joseph, you'll use Joseph to lead us to Jesus and to lead us to this this table in front of us, to to this... um, ordinance that he left with his disciples for the worship of him, to remember him, to remember his life and death, and to celebrate by faith what he did for his people. So help us with all that this morning, Father. We need help. We are are weak. We are easily distracted. We are prone to worship other things, other people. So Father, I pray that you'll give us all the help we need this morning through your Holy Spirit to see you as you are, and to give you what you deserve and what you want, and that is adoration of your son, to kiss your son. Help us as we endeavor to do that. And I pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when we last saw Joseph two chapters ago, uh, we saw him in that disturbing scene out there in that field out around Shechem. And you remember, Joseph's dad had sent him up to the Shechem area to check on his brothers maybe even to spy on his brothers and find out what they were doing. Were they taking care of the flocks the way they were supposed to? Were they doing anything wrong? Because we know these boys had a tendency to to get into some trouble. So Jacob sent Joseph up there to check on his brothers. And when his brothers saw him coming, jealous of their little brother, we know what they did. Threw him into a pit, intending to kill him. But instead, they decided to sell him to some Ishmaelite traders who were passing by. Then, of all things, they tried to cover up what they had done by making it look to their father like a wild animal had killed and eaten Joseph. Well, sadly, poor Jacob believed them. 
You know, he didn't, he didn't seem to question that too much. He didn't do his own research. He, he didn't travel up to Shechem and look for, for Joseph himself. He took their word for it and went into deep mourning for the loss of his son. And the language of Scripture makes it sound like Jacob thought he would probably grieve all the way to his death or even grieve himself to death. That's how hard he took that. Look how heartless his sons were to do that to him. That's just absolutely heartless. But again, are we surprised by that? These are the same boys who butchered all the men who lived in Shechem and then stole their wives and kids and all of their stuff for themselves. We shouldn't be surprised by that. But we know Joseph was not killed. In chapter 39, when we come to it, very, very first verse, verse 1, we find Joseph's continuing saga. He didn't die. He is alive. And we find out where he went from that moment when they sold him to those Ishmaelite traders. And so I want you to join me. We're going to move down through the text verse by verse very quickly and just make some observations, okay? So join me in verse 1. You teach your intention on the Word of God. And um, let me read verse 1, and then we'll, we'll, we'll make some comments about what Moses has given us here. Verse 1. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So as Joseph's brothers were back home spinning their tail before their father, breaking their father's heart, Jacob was on his way hundreds of miles down to the southwest, down to Egypt, where Jacob was sold again. He'd already been sold once to the Ishmaelite traders. Now he's sold again, this time to one of Pharaoh's highest officials. This man was captain of his guard, so evidently he was a military official, and he had a lot of authority over many other officers and many other soldiers or many other police officers. could have been one or both of those at the same time. Jacob quickly, as we see here, Jacob quickly went from being the favorite in his father's house to nothing more than a piece of property in a stranger's house. And in that process, Joseph ended up cut off from everything and everyone he had known for his 17 years. Just like that. Happened overnight, literally. Just just like that, his life changed, and now it's like he knows no one. And everyone he's always known is cut off from him. Well, not everyone. Look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a a successful man, And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. So Joseph was taken away from everyone else that he knew. And he did probably feel very alone down in Egypt. But Moses tells us here he wasn't alone. The Lord, Yahweh, the the covenant God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, his father, was with him too. And what we're going to find as we move down through these verses, it's not like Yahweh was just with Joseph passively. Joseph's in Egypt, so is Yahweh. He's there too. So he's watching everything that takes place. That's true, he is watching everything that takes place. But what we are finding is God is not passive in Joseph's life at this point in time. We're going to find out that it was God who made Joseph, as verse 2 says, a very successful man, even as a slave in Potiphar's house. And Moses helps us. He tells us what that success actually looks like. Look at verses 3 through 6. And his master, Joseph's master, saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house and all that he had he put under his authority. 
So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all he had in the house and in the field. Thus, he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread that he ate. So Potiphar owns Joseph. Potiphar could order his slaves to do everything he wanted them to do. And everything he gave Joseph to do prospered. That's an interesting word, prospered. Did Joseph do it well? Yes. But this word doesn't mean Joseph just maintained everything that Potiphar had as it already was. The word means Joseph pushed it forward. So what was put into Joseph's hands in one condition By the time Joseph touched it, by the time Joseph handled it for a little bit of time, it was better. We would say everything Joseph touched turned to gold. That's literally what's happening here at this point in time in Potiphar's house. So Potiphar put everything he had in Joseph's care. Put Joseph in charge of all of it. And you think, well, why wouldn't he? I mean, after you watch that take place, everything I give Joseph to do, he ends up making it even better. And so Potiphar says, I'm giving it all to him. I'm going to let him take charge of every bit of it. Now, Moses says Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper. I don't think that means Potiphar understood who Joseph's God was and that Joseph's God was the one making all of this to happen. I think all Moses is telling us here is that Potiphar saw the results of what Yahweh was doing through Joseph, but he definitely saw the results. He understood that this kid's got the Midas touch. Once again, no matter what responsibility I give him, no matter who else I put him in charge of, he makes everything that I've got so much better. So, He put everything under Joseph's care. And when he did that, what happened? Everything that he put under Joseph's care got even better, as we know from Scripture, right? So that caused Potiphar to trust Joseph wholeheartedly with all of his possessions. No conditions, no accountability. It's like Potiphar was saying to Joseph, you just do what you want with everything that I've got. All Potiphar knew was, I've got food on my table every night, and that was good enough for him. No worries about anything else, no questions, no looking over his shoulder, just, I trust you, Joseph, okay? Now, Joseph has got it made at this point in time, right? Absolutely made at this point in time. You would think, but that's not always the case, right? Because we understand that whenever God is at work, the enemy is at work at the same time, right? So look at verses 6 and 7 with me again, and this is what we find at the end of verse 6. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. Did you see that? Now, Joseph was handsome. Now, that wasn't Joseph's fault, right? Joseph didn't do anything to make himself handsome and get himself in trouble. It was actually his mama's fault. This was genetic. He inherited this from his mama, Rachel. Because this very same language that's used for him, he was handsome in form and appearance. That same language is used of Rachel. She was beautiful in form and appearance. That's what Moses said about her as well. And just like Joseph's father, Jacob, was attracted to Rachel for her beauty, People were attracted to Joseph for his appearance. 
as well. When Joseph walked down the street or when he walked through Potiphar's house, people didn't not notice him. They said, wow, man, he's a good-looking guy. Take a look at Joseph. When I, want to grow, when I grow up, I want to look just like Joseph. I want to be good-looking. I want to be built just like Joseph. That's what was going on in Joseph's life because that's what God had given him, his form and appearance. And so people were attracted to him, especially one person. Potiphar's wife was especially attracted to Joseph. She liked to look at him. And the more she looked at him, she wanted to do more than just look at him. And that's the offer that she made to Joseph, right? Now, put yourself in Joseph's sandals at this point in time. How flattering is this, right? I mean, think about that. Joseph is probably a a 20-year-old Hebrew boy slave in the house of one of the most prominent Egyptians in Egypt. And the wife of that prominent Egyptian, probably a lady who is prominent in society herself, fixes her attention on Joseph, on this young Hebrew slave of all people. She wants me more than anyone else. I mean, flattering, right? And you guys, do you remember what it was like when you were 20 years old? Hormones are raging at that point in time. 20-year-old guys have one thing on their mind a lot of the time, and now here's this, this, this older lady, wealthy lady, influential lady, important lady, and, and, and she's making this kind of an offer to you. I mean, that, that's a hard temptation to resist at this point in time. And Joseph, at the, in this spot, it, it might have been very easy for him to justify giving in to her, right? I mean, after the way I've been treated, after all that it's been, that's been taken away from me, I deserve a little bit of pleasure. You could see him kind of giving into this based on his past and the way he was feeling about himself at this point in time. And I have no doubt that Potiphar's wife was making other promises to him. Oh, I'll make your life even better. I'll make some promises to you if you just, if you just give in here. And he could probably get by with it too, right? I mean, he and she probably understood that Potiphar's not going to find out about this. Potiphar doesn't even know what's going on in the house. He's put everything under Joseph's care. He's off doing his military stuff. He's not a bit worried about what's going on back in his house. We could get by with this and no one would ever know. That is a dangerous set of circumstances for any man. Flattery, male desires, opportunity, a little bit of self-pity, secrecy. That makes this hard to resist for anyone. So how did Joseph do with this? Well, look at verse 8. But he refused. Good on you, Joseph. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Again, good for you, Joseph. First of all, Joseph won't betray his master. I mean, Potiphar has done the unthinkable for Joseph. I mean, you talk about grace. You talk about a gift. Potiphar has taken this this young Hebrew slave and made him top in Potiphar's house. He's in charge of everything that Potiphar has. He's got the authority to do anything that he wants with it. And it seems like Joseph really appreciates that privilege that's been given to him here. 
The language makes it seem like Joseph is even above all the other family members in the house. He even has charge of Potiphar's other family members, maybe Potiphar's children. Joseph has authority over all of them. And so Joseph is thinking, this man has done so much for me. How in the world can I do this and betray his grace, betray his trust? And there's only one thing that's hands off for me, and that's his wife. That's you. And so there's no way I'm going to betray this trust, this great trust that he's given to me. But it doesn't stop with that. It's bigger than that, isn't it? I mean, we don't even have the Mosaic Law at this point in time yet. But somehow Joseph knows that it would be wrong to commit adultery. Verse 9, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Somehow at this point, Joseph already knows that adultery is actually a breach of God's will, a breach of God's law. And so for whatever reason... Maybe he's already seen the adultery that his oldest brother Reuben has committed at this point in time. Joseph didn't know about what you guys saw last week with his father in Tamar. Joseph didn't know about that. He was down in Egypt. But he did know about his father Reuben sleeping with Rachel's handmaid just to get at his father. And so maybe Joseph has watched this adultery even in his own family and come to the conclusion that this can't be right before God. God, God does not honor this. God does not bless this. And so here he is with the opportunity to do it himself and maybe even get by with it before people. But he says, no, I know what God wants. I know what God's will is, and I will not sin against God in this way. And so Joseph refuses her advance, refuses her offer, refuses her demand here. And he even explained to her exactly why he was refusing her. Everything we just read, he said to her, This is not just Moses saying what had happened. This is Joseph saying it actually to her face. And so we might expect, well, she should respect his integrity then, right? I mean, if he explained it this thoroughly to her and, you know, he does not want to violate her husband. He does not want to violate his own God. Well, anybody can respect that, right? Well, not her. Look at verse 10. So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her, to lie with her or to be with her. She didn't care about Joseph's integrity. She didn't care about Joseph's God. She didn't care about her own husband. She didn't care about the rest of her family. She wanted what she wanted, and she was probably used to getting what she wanted. It's possible she had done this before with other slaves in the household. I can't prove that, but from what I read, that was a common thing back then. So maybe she had done this and got by with it before. So she was expecting to do it again and get by with it once again with Joseph. So she kept trying every day to get what she wanted from Joseph. But every day Joseph refused. And he not only refused to sleep with her, he tried everything he could do to stay away from her in the house. And so Joseph is making a lot of good moves here. I mean, practical moves, very good moves. You have to give him a whole lot of credit. But unfortunately, this lady would not be denied. Look at verse 11. It happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. So if she couldn't get Joseph to do it willingly, she was going to force herself on him. And that's what she did. She watched and waited until the perfect moment catching him alone, and she ambushed him. 
She grabbed him, and she refused to let go. And the language here is very, very vivid. She was was so aggressive and holding on to his robe so tightly that he had to wrestle himself out of the robe, and it would have had to come up over his head like a kid taking off his his coat and pulling the arms out. That's, That's what you see here of Joseph just doing everything he can to pull himself away from her by pulling himself out of the robe that he was wearing, and then he's out of there. He hightailed it out of the house as fast as he could. Again, good on you, Joseph, another, another good move for him. Well, we know what they say about a woman scorned, right? Look at verse 13. So it was, when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant servant whom you brought to us came in to mock me. So it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and he fled outside. So you got to think, Potiphar's wife did not expect to be jilted like this. She expected eventually, especially if she put the heat on, especially if she pushed hard enough and, and caught him in the right spot, eventually Joseph would give in to her. But Joseph didn't. He wouldn't. And even physically tore himself away from her to run away. This woman has now been jilted, which set her off. And immediately, just like that, her feelings suddenly went from a desire to have Joseph secretly to the desire to destroy Joseph publicly, just like that. He had humiliated her, so she wanted to hurt him badly. How did she do it? Well, I just read to you the the things that she said after Joseph left the house. Here she is now blatantly lying about what happened. She now makes Joseph out to be the predator, and she's the victim in this whole situation. And did you notice how she spoke to the Egyptian slaves in her household? Verse 14, she said, um, she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. What's she doing? She's almost treating the slaves now like peers to her. We're all Egyptians. You, me, we're all alike. We're Egyptians, and this Hebrew has come in to mock us. So she is ruthless. I mean, she'll even go as far as to try to lift the slaves up just to get them on her side against Joseph. And then when she gets to to her husband, here she is pleading with her husband for his sympathy and his protection when she's been so disloyal to him for day after day after day prior to this. She even tried to get her husband to feel responsible for all this. It's kind of like Adam and Eve in the garden, right? That woman who you gave to me, what's, what's Potiphar's wife doing? You brought this kid into the house who tried this trying to get her husband to feel guilty for the whole situation, like it's all my fault. She even played the race card. Did you get that? That Hebrew is trying to mock us. He thinks he's better than us. He came in here looking down his nose at us and thinking he can do anything he wants and get anything he wants because he thinks these Hebrew people are better than us Egyptian people. He's even playing the, she's even playing the race card. 
This woman is off the chain, to say the least. Did it work? Look at verses 19 and 20. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. Did it work? Yeah, it worked. She got what she wanted. She wanted to hurt Joseph. She hurt him. Now, truthfully, I'm surprised Potiphar didn't have him killed. Aren't you? I mean, he's just a slave. He's just a piece of property. And here he comes in, tries to rape your wife. You can do anything you want with your property. I'm surprised he didn't have Joseph executed. And, and no one can explain, humanly speaking, why he didn't. Why didn't he make that decision? But at the same time, don't get in your mind that, oh, he didn't have him killed, so Joseph got off easy. No, where does Joseph end up? In prison. And not just any prison. This is the prison where the king's prisoners are confined. People who are put in this prison are people who have committed crimes against the crown. Next week, we're going to meet a couple of those prisoners, Pharaoh's baker and his butler, who were in there because they were accused of, of a conspiracy against the king, trying to assassinate the king. So you have to imagine that the people who are put in this prison are not treated real well. And people who are put in this prison probably don't have a lot of hope that they're going to get out and their lives are going to be given back to them because that probably doesn't happen very often. So Joseph is now put in a federal penitentiary, basically. And, and the psalmist gives us some help for what his life was like in there. Psalm 105, 18 says this, They hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons until Pharaoh had him released. So Joseph didn't have a cakewalk in the prison. It wasn't like he was hopping down the yellow brick road all around the prison every day while everybody else was being mistreated. No, he had a rough time in that prison. It looks to me like his situation now is even worse than when the Ishmaelite traders led him off to, to Egypt originally, okay? But then we get to that phrase in Scripture that we see so often and we love so much. Just when it's the darkest, just when it seems to be the most hopeless, you get to verse 21 and you see these words, but the Lord was with Joseph. It's the Ephesians chapter 2 passage, right? But God, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were living by the flesh. You were living according to Satan. You were, you were a child of wrath, but God. And here we have it here, but the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph's brothers, they were so angry and jealous toward him, so angry about what he did to them that they had to get rid of him. And to make it happen, they lied about what they had done. And because of their wickedness, Joseph ended up a slave in Egypt. Now we see Potiphar's wife, she's so angered by what Joseph did that she had to get rid of him. And she was willing to lie about what she had done to make sure that that happened to him. And because of her wickedness, he ends up an inmate in a federal penitentiary, basically. But both times, when everyone around Joseph was trying to get rid of him, the Lord was with him. And look what happens every time the Lord is with him. We saw in Potiphar's house what happened, but look at verse 21, and let's look what happened at the prison when the Lord was with him. Verse 21 the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand, Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. 
The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Again, it's the same thing we saw before, right? Again, through the Lord's active mercy, everything that Joseph did in that prison turned to gold. And it was noticed, right? Everyone around him noticed that this kid's different. This kid's got the Midas touch. This kid doesn't make mistakes. Whatever this kid does, it prospers. He's successful about everything. And just like Potiphar, the warden gave him more and more responsibility with very little accountability. The warden of the king's prison trusted this young Hebrew inmate to be in charge of all the other prisoners because he could see the results of the Lord's presence with him and the Lord's merciful activity in his life. It's almost like the warden would just go off and go fishing every day and leave everything in the the prison with, with Joseph because he knew it would be fine and he could just go do what he wanted to do. This is Joseph's experience because the Lord is with him. Now, this is an incredible story, isn't it? This sounds like something that writers would make up for a movie. It does. And, and it's not even finished yet. As we go forward, there are more twists and turns to this story. It, it stays just as fascinating as what we've seen here in chapter 39 this morning. But the question is, what's it got to do with us? This is thousands of years before us. This is far off in another land across the seas. I mean, what in the world does this have to do with us? Surely this is not just here for some kind of Christian entertainment. And surely this is not just here so we can just get some more Bible history knowledge. We do, we should, but but it can't be here just for that reason. And I tell you, folks, the more that I've looked at it and thought about it, I think this scene is incredibly relevant for our lives today. And let me make a statement to kind of let you know what I mean by that. I think the majority of people today are not happy with their life. I'm not going to say 95% or 73%. No, I'm not doing that. But I think just based on my observation, the people that I know outside the church, within the church, I think the majority of people are not happy with their lives. And I can back that up with a whole lot of evidence. You want a few pieces? Try this on for size. Think about the very, very fast rise lately in the number of people, adults and children, who are questioning, if not abandoning, their gender, their biological identity, their sexuality. I don't like who I am. I don't want to be who I am anymore. I think I'll be something that I'm not biologically. That is just taking off like crazy and going up up so quickly right now. Think about the rise in suicides. The number of people who are committing suicides these days just keeps going up and up and up. People don't commit suicide when they're happy. They do it when they give up hope. This is my life. I can't get out of it. Nothing's changing, and anything's got to be better than this, and so they they take their life. Think about the rise in accidental overdoses. We hear so much about fentanyl these days and people dying from fentanyl. They don't die from fentanyl on purpose. They took illegal drugs because they wanted to experience something that they weren't experiencing in life already, or life is so bad that they wanted to check out for a while with this illegal drug. Somebody laced it with fentanyl. They end up dying by accident. But the point was, they were not happy with their life. That's why they were doing drugs originally. Think about this, too. 
The number of divorces is not going down. I'm not saying it's going up tremendously, but, but through the years, the number of divorces outside the church and in the church is not really changing. It's still up there. 50, 60% of every marriage ends in divorce. Why? Because it doesn't end up the way they planned when they first got married. The vision I had for this relationship and this marriage, it's not like that anymore. I'm out of here. Think about the vast number of people who are on antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications these days, and they're in therapy. Why? Partly because their life is such a mess, they're so unhappy that, that they need something to deal with it. We were with a bunch of teachers last night who teach in a lot of different schools, and they were talking about the number of kids that come into a school, new kid coming into a school these days. You look at their records, and there are many of them are on antidepressants, they are on anxiety medication, that they are affected some way psychologically, and they're not happy with things as they are, and they need medication to help them settle down and cope with life as it is. And I'll give you another one. This might be even the biggest evidence of all. Everywhere you go now, a restaurant, a store, watch somebody driving down the road, everybody's got a phone in front of them. Everybody's watching a video these days, TikTok, Instagram, whatever it is, people are watching five-minute, three-minute, eight-minute videos of what someone else is doing, fascinated with what this person says or this person is doing and what their life is like and how they dress and how she does her makeup and blah, blah, blah. Why? Because I'm not happy with my life. I don't like reality, so I'll go to a place that's not reality and just spend all of my time there looking at someone else's life, looking at life as someone else presents it to me. Folks, the common thread here is dissatisfaction with life as it is. And even if we're not doing those things, those evidences that I gave to you, even if we're not doing those things ourselves, our flesh is always restless. Our flesh is always looking for something better. And even if not better, something different than what I've already got. And the world is always offering opportunities to make a change. That is, that is reality. That is where we are, folks. That's why I say when we look at Joseph here in chapter 39, Joseph is a huge help to people like us with that kind of a problem. Huge help. Because if ever there was someone who had a reason to be discontent, even bitter about how his life had turned out, I mean, if anyone ever had a reason to feel shafted, if anyone ever had a motivation to look for change, wouldn't it be Joseph? I mean, this was the golden boy. This, Joseph was the favorite out of 12 sons. He was his father's favorite, and he had the tunic to prove it. His father had given him the coat of many colors as a very clear sign that you are the favored one. You are above everyone else. I look at you that way, and I am treating you that way. Add to that even the dreams that Joseph had had. I mean, I don't know how you dream at night, but Joseph's dreams were, one day, I'm going to be above all of my siblings. They're going to bow down to me. One day, even my parents are going to bow down and serve me. I am going to be exalted above all of them, and they're all going to serve me. This kid had it all. This kid had, had so much hope and so much promise for his future, but he ends up thrown into a hole in a field. 
and then left by his brothers, and then sold like an animal, and taken away from his family and home, way down, hundreds of miles down to Egypt, where he was sold again into slavery. He was lied about, and he was falsely imprisoned. This is, no, this is nothing like the fairy tale ending that Joseph had probably envisioned for himself. And yet, do you see any signs of restlessness in Joseph? See any bitterness? See any anger? Any hatred? You hear anything that makes you think Joseph has self-pity going on? You see Joseph now distrusting everybody else because of how he's been treated in his past? No, we see none of that. We don't see Joseph trying to defend his rights. We don't see Joseph trying to plot an escape from Potiphar's house or, or from the prison once he gets there. We don't hear Joseph trying to plot revenge against his brothers or I'm going to get back at Potiphar's wife for what she did to me. None of that either. This is just Joseph trying to do the best with what he's been given. Wherever he is, whatever task is given to him, he's just trying to do his best. Here is Joseph honoring and obeying people who own him wrongly and imprison him falsely. And he's honoring them. He's obeying them. Joseph is serving everybody that's around him, everybody that's under him. Joseph is just serving everyone else. And I ask, how? I don't think I could do that. I don't think I would want to do that. How does Joseph do that? Why did Joseph do that? And Moses doesn't explain it to us explicitly, but I think we get a real good hint from Joseph himself. If you'll look back up to verse 9, where Joseph explained his reasons to Potiphar's wife, how did he finish it up? He said this, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? This is the first time we've heard Joseph mention God. That name has not come from his mouth, at least not that Moses has recorded. We've not seen that, that direct personal connection yet. But here, there's a direct personal connection between Joseph and God. How can I do this? How can I give in to this woman and sin against God? He's got a very high view of God at this point. It would take a very high view of God for a man like Joseph to resist that kind of pressure in this kind of situation. Very high view of God. You have to ask, where did that view of God come from? Well, I think we've got to guess a little bit at this, but we know Joseph was his father's favorite. He's got the coat to prove it. Once again, he's his father's favorite. I have no doubt that Joseph spent a lot of time with his father, maybe even more time than all the other kids that Jacob had. Joseph spent a lot of time with his father. And I think Jacob probably had told Joseph about the covenant that God made with Joseph's great-grandfather, and then Joseph's grandfather, and then Joseph's father, too, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I think he had told him about all those covenant promises. I'm going to do this for all of your descendants. I'm going to treat them like I treat no one else on the face of the earth. And I think probably Jacob had given Joseph some examples of that. This is what God did in Abraham's day and for his family. This is what God did in Isaac's day and for his family. This is what he has done for me. I think probably Jacob told Joseph about those times that God had appeared to Jacob appeared to him in a vision and spoke with him and reiterated that covenant, those covenant promises to him. 
even sent angels sometimes so that Joseph could look and see, wow, God is with me and God is taking care of me and and God is, is making everything happen for me because look at these angels that are showing up now. I think Jacob probably expressed some of that to Joseph. And Joseph had seen the blessing of God on his family and on him. I mean, Joseph was there. He was old enough to watch as God miraculously gave Jacob all those spotted and speckled and streaked goats and lambs from Laban's herb or herds. I think, you know, Joseph, Joseph couldn't miss that. That was not ordinary. That was not natural. That wasn't routine. Joseph was there when God surprisingly reconciled his father and Esau when Esau had, had wanted to kill Jacob for all of those years. And now he, he falls on his neck and kisses him when he sees him. That's not normal. Joseph was there when his father took all the household idols that Rachel and Leah had brought from Laban's family and and Jacob took them all and buried them under a tree there around Shechem. Joseph was there when that took place. Joseph was there when his father was worried after his sons killed all the men of Shechem. Jacob was worried that now all the other people that live around here, they're going to hear about this and they're going to come take revenge on us. They're going to kill me and all of my family. And Joseph was there as the family marched then through Canaan and nobody made a move toward them. Nobody lifted a finger to touch them because the Lord had put the fear of God in all the other peoples in Canaan. Joseph was there at Bethel when his dad built an altar to worship the one true God at that spot. Joseph was there when they they got back down to Isaac and they had that big family reunion with, with Jacob's family finally coming back to the promised land and back to Isaac, his his father, as God had promised. Joseph was there to witness that. And then Potiphar's house. I mean, Joseph had to see what was happening in Potiphar's house. Everybody else saw it. Everything this kid touches turns to gold. And Joseph had to understand that this is not normal. This is not natural. This must be the blessing of God on my life. So Joseph has been exposed to God many times and many ways. And I would say, after all of that exposure, Joseph now thought enough of God that he wanted to honor God by doing his will, no matter how unnatural that might be, no matter how unfair it might be, no matter how costly it was for Joseph, he wanted to honor that God. We're going to find out later in the book of Genesis that Joseph knew that God was sovereign over everything that was happening in his life, and even all of this bad stuff, that was God moving Joseph into a spot to do other things through him. He knew that at the end of the book of Genesis. I think maybe Joseph is already understanding that here. And that's why he's not complaining about what's going on. This is why he's not fighting everything that's taking place in his life. This is not Joseph trying to get every scrap he possibly can for himself. Why? Because he's been exposed to God. He's seen something about God and who God is and what God has promised and what God is doing in the life of his family and in his own personal life. God has evidently revealed enough of himself to Joseph that Joseph admires him and trusts him and obeys him, even in the hardest, even in the most unclear, most disappointing, most unfair situations. And folks, I think that's the key to contentment and joy in our lives as well. The key is looking more at God than we look at the picture we had for our life. 
looking more at God than we're looking at the picture of someone else's life. Looking more at God than we look at the pictures that the world provides for us. Here's what life could be. No. Looking more at God than all of that. And the greater we see God to be, the more content we'll be, the more joyful we'll be with the life that he's given us, and the more we'll trust him, even when life is hard, even when it's unfair, even when it's costing us things that we didn't want to give up, and even when we can't see where life is going from here, we'll still be content, we'll still be joyful, we'll still trust God because it's God. God's doing it. God's in charge of it. I know who he is. I know what he has promised. Therefore, I'll be content with what he's giving me. When we see God in his glory, especially when we see the glory of his grace to us, we will want to do God's will, even when that means serving others for their prosperity. There's a whole lot of people today who will follow God when they think it's going to make them prosperous. But how many people see God so clearly and love him so much that they are willing to serve him just to make other people prosperous? And to do that in slavery or prison. That's what a clear picture of God will do in someone's mind and produce in someone's actions. Do you see God that way? I mean, honestly, only you can answer that in your heart and in your mind. Do you really see God that way? Is it showing up in your attitudes and your actions? Even when life goes in a direction that you didn't have planned? Even in hard times? Even when you're mistreated? Or humiliated? Or used and abused? Do you see God that way? And if you say, Pastor Mark, honestly, I'm struggling. Honestly, I'm struggling to see God that way and to act that way because of it. You need a little more help? Let me give you some. We have the privilege, having the word of God in our hands, we have the privilege of knowing the end of Joseph's story. We can look back on Joseph's life from the end, backwards, right? And it really helps us because we know how God was using all of this jealousy and this hatred and this lying and this injustice against Joseph to move him to Egypt, to move him to Potiphar, to move him to prison, to move him to the king's butler, to move him to Pharaoh, to put him in the position to save his family and other dying, helpless people from many nations, not just from, from, from Israel or from Egypt, but people from many nations during a terrible fam- famine. We know that. We know Joseph's suffering was a road to salvation for many other people. Let me say that again. We know that Joseph's hardships, Joseph's injustice, Joseph's suffering was a road to salvation for many other people. Does that sound familiar to you? Does it remind you of anyone else? It should. Because when we look at Joseph, what we have is, is one of the most beautiful types of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. You look at Joseph and what he did and what happened to him, and, and you're seeing pictures ahead of time of what was coming with Jesus and what was coming to Jesus. And, and there's so many parallels, and there's so many of them, and they're so deep that we don't have time to cover them this morning. I'm not going to try to develop them. But if you can take shorthand very quickly, can I just give you a sample of the parallels between Joseph and Jesus? 
try this on for size. Just like Joseph, the Son of God left the highest favor in his father's house for the greatest humiliation somewhere else. For the Son of God, what was it? To be a lowly human being, Jesus. Like Joseph, Jesus willingly suffered jealousy, slander, rejection, lies, and betrayal from his own brethren, the people of Israel. And then, cruel injustice at the hand of Gentiles. Just like Joseph, Jesus refused to give in to temptation for his own fleshly pleasure. Just like Joseph, Jesus refused to hate those who had mistreated him. Just like Joseph, Jesus refused to defend his rights or condemn his accusers or to try to free himself from injustice. Joseph didn't do it. Jesus didn't either. Just like Joseph, Jesus accepted all of it to do what he knew to be the will of God, serving everyone around him, ultimately to rescue Jews and Gentiles from death. And then here's the last thing I'll throw out to you. Just like Joseph, the Lord prospered all that Jesus did as his servant. Remember Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10? And the, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That prophecy about Jesus 700 years before it took place. You see what I'm saying? Joseph's story is not recorded for us to admire Joseph. It's there to help us see and admire Joseph's absolutely incredible God and what he did through Joseph's antitype, Jesus, to save his people from death. That's why Joseph is in Scripture. It's why his life was set up and handled the way it was by God so that we can see God and Jesus through Joseph. Does that cause you to admire God? Is that enough truth about God to make you content, even happy with the life he's given you? Is it enough to make you serve God like Joseph did? Is it enough for you to live for the glory of his son, Jesus, living to serve others just like he did for you? Even in hardship? When it requires sacrifice? If you're betrayed by people near you? If you're given injustice rather than justice, is it enough? My prayer is, it has been all this week, but it it is still this morning. My prayer is that as all of us look closely at Joseph, we'll look closer at Jesus. Don't stop with Joseph. Look through Joseph to Jesus and see the glory of God in the servanthood of Jesus. And then because of that, all of us will end up living as glad servants for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's my prayer. And after we sing a song here in just a second, we'll have a word of prayer and a song. We're going to take an even closer look at Jesus to prepare ourselves to worship him through the Lord's Supper. So join me in a word of prayer and we'll do that together. Father, thank you for uh, men like Joseph, characters like Joseph, lives like Joseph, where you were with him. You were actively at work. You were merciful. You were accomplishing all of your plans through this one man, plans for men on earth at that point in time, 
plans to bring deliverance during a famine, a severe drought for people in Egypt, for Jacob's own, uh, Joseph's own family, Jacob and all the other children and grandchildren, but for people from, all, from nations all over the earth at that point in time. You were using Joseph, putting him in a spot where he could, he could do what was necessary to keep them alive at that moment. But we're more amazed at the life that you were building in Joseph to be a picture of the life that you would send years later. The life of your son as a man, Jesus Christ. And how the the actions, the decisions and the actions by Joseph pictured what Jesus was later going to do. Not just for help for people on earth at that point in time, but for eternal help, eternal salvation for people from Jacob's family, Israelites, and Gentiles as well. People like us. Thousands of years later, in a completely different part of the world, what Jesus did was for us. His servanthood was to give us life when we were dying. So, Father, we are amazed at you. We stand amazed every time we open this book. Every time you show us more about yourself, we we stand in awe. And every time you show us more about yourself, you're showing us more about your son. He is the revelation you mean for us to see. And he is the one you intend to to be admired and adored. Again, I can't get Psalm 2 off my mind. Kiss the Son. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Kiss the Son. And the more we see passages like this, the more we're pushed to the Son, the more we're pushed to Jesus Christ to contemplate what He did on our behalf. And why wouldn't we kiss Him? Why wouldn't we adore Him? Why wouldn't we bow down before Him and kiss His hand as royalty? And why wouldn't we love Him like like our eternal spouse? Why wouldn't we? Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel in the book of Genesis. Thank you for for always putting us on that pathway to to show us the glory of your grace in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that as we come to this table in just a moment, We're not distracted, that our minds aren't wandering, that we're not thinking about lunch. We're not trying to get out of here. We're thinking about Jesus, his life, his death as our substitute. And when we eat and we drink, that we are expressing the the singular faith that we have in him. We trust in nothing but his life and his death to make us right in your sight, to earn forgiveness of our sins, to earn eternal life with him forever and ever. May we give him what he deserves through the Lord's Supper. I pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.